Welcome to the Making Headway Podcast, a podcast for brain injury survivors by brain injury survivors, providing resources and camaraderie for anyone recovering from any type of brain injury, with your hosts, Aaron Martin and Mariah Morgan. Welcome back to the Making Headway Podcast, and just a reminder to all you listeners out there, this month is Stroke Awareness Month, so we're taking some time with guests who we feel are most helpful or um, interesting in terms of stroke awareness and technology out there to help stroke survivors as they tackle their recovery journeys. Without further ado, Erin is going to introduce our guest today. So we are continuing our series with Modus Nova. If you guys tuned in last week, you might remember our discussion with David Wu, who introduced the company to us and gave us an idea as to what Modus Nova is, um, what you can expect with it. And this week, we're very fortunate to have Dr. Nick Housley. He's a doctor in physical therapy, also a PhD in neuroscience, and um, he's going to help us understand more about um, how Modus Nova could help you and some of the science and um, more fine points behind the technology. So welcome, Nick. Welcome. Yeah, thanks, guys. Uh, thanks, Maria. Thanks, uh, Aaron, for, for uh, inviting us on here. Um, it's a great, great pleasure to, uh, to be present with you guys and to uh, um, talk a little bit about the background about Modus Nova and about how we can help, um, help people with neurologic injuries recover. Yeah, it's awesome. such cool technology. It's uh, I was just um, when we interviewed David, I, we were saying like it's so nice to see technology helping brain injury survivors because I think a lot of people think their recovery has to be like totally analog. So it's nice to see some of this, you know, advancing us into the future with the technology. So yeah, yeah, we uh, we very much subscribe to that same sort of concept, right? You know, I'm a, I'm a physical therapist by training. Um, but a lot of what I was involved in early on was sort of these novel or some might say crazy ways of, uh, of helping people learn to recover their um, upper and lower extremity function. And so I'm, I'm a big proponent in technology as not necessarily as a replacement for, as you say, traditional analog therapies, um, these sort of more conventional kind of in-home or in, uh, in-clinic based approaches. But um, these are sort of complementary, we think. Um, and so we're, we're really excited to help um, push the field forward on the technology side um, and help individuals have access to new ways of recovering. Yeah. And so we just learned, we did not know this when we were coordinating this interview, we just learned that you are also a brain injury survivor. So it's nice to know, <laughs> you know, that somebody behind this technology is also knows what it is like to be a survivor. Um, I feel like it's one of those things that it's really hard to understand unless you've been on your own recovery journey yourself. Can you speak a little bit to your recovery and um, and how that's lent itself to your approach here? Sure. Yeah, happy to do this. Um, you guys may know this after after um, our conversation today. I'm a pretty open book when it comes to this stuff. And so I can maybe give you a little bit of background. And so um, I was actually a professional cyclist for a long time. And that was I was in the United States and domestic circuit. And kind of the, just to clarify things, kind of the Lance Armstrong style bike racing um, on the road, two wheels, that kind of thing, um, uh, human powered. And uh, so I was racing on the road and on the track in the velodrome. And I was gearing up in 2012 for um, shot at basically uh, London on the, on the track. And uh, we were at a race and in early, early 2012. And effectively what happened was we were in a um, sort of in a dynamic situation in a race. And I was sort of the, um, the victim, I guess, if you will, of a um, unsportsmanlike sort of bit of conduct. Ooh. And what resulted with that is that I um, ended up, we were in a race and, you know, going something like 30, 35 miles an hour. And, you know, we have a helmet on, but I ended up hitting the ground um, on my face at about 30, 35 miles an hour. Um, and then had a bunch of, um, uh, facial trauma, a bunch of, a uh, bunch of injuries and ended up being in the hospital for a while. I ended up having, um, reconstruction done on my lower jaw, I had eight fracture in my lower jaw. I had, um, uh, mandibular condyle fractures, zygomatic and temporal fractures and a subdrug hematoma, um, uh, brain bleed on my right side. And that was, uh, uh was a pretty big, a pretty big situation for me. I, um, went through rehab in the hospital 
And I was also an undergrad at this point. Um, so to give you a little bit of, of perspective, I was studying um, genetics at University of Georgia. And um, after my recovery process, going through PT and OT, I was actually originally on the track to be um, pre-med. Um, so I was ultimately going to hopefully be a physician at some point. But um, I went through probably three months of, of rehab and recovery and, you know, probably five or six surgeries, reconstructive surgeries, um, and was trying to get back into school, um, trying to get back into the swing of things, uh, going back to university and had, um, a lot of things kind of pushing me in multiple directions. One of them was actually, I had a, a really great experience with rehab. Um, and I didn't have such a good experience with the, the medical side of things. Um, so my physical therapists were, uh, were always there, right? They're the first ones to get me up out of bed and to force me to get up and, and moving again. And, um, the first ones to help me kind of relearn how to, how to walk and, 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 and perform tasking. And that, in addition to maybe not such a good experience on the medical side, really led me to kind of switch career paths. And so the University of Georgia actually switched into a physiology approach to go into PT school. And so in uh, 2013, I applied for um, PT school and was, was accepted at PT school um, at Georgia State University. And this will kind of all kind of come full circle here when we kind of figure out where, where modus um, gets involved. And I had at that point on, I had a really big interest in, in neuro recovery. Um, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. Right. But I knew that that neurologic injuries were, were pretty, um, um, pretty motivating for me. I had a lot of vested interest in this and in seeing individuals have, you know, struggle with recovery. I was thankfully quite fortunate. I only had mainly a bunch of uh, memory and some language issues, not a whole lot of, of movement-based um, impairments. But um, so I, I think that I was, I was able to get into Georgia State. They let me in <laughs> mm -hmm. and um, quickly got linked in with the scientific aspects of things. And so I got in, um, in very early on, basically the first year, first, um, I guess, the second semester um, into Dr. Andrew Butler's lab, the neuroplasticity lab. And this is actually where I met David Wu for the very first time in 2013. Ah. Yeah. And so um, one of the things that was really interesting to me in that lab was that they were using these technologies to help individuals recover um, from strokes primarily. Um, and they had some interest in other other areas, but it's primarily focused on, on stroke survivors. And they were using these really cool approaches to help individuals recover. They're using a lot of different technologies, but one of them was actually the hand mentor at that time, um, now called the modus hand and the modus foot. And so I got um, pretty quickly embedded in a couple of the projects, understanding how the modus hand could be used at the home and, you know, working with David as the lab manager at the time there, um, you know, we, we kind of got to know each other and realized that it was still kind of a lab based, um, product at this point. It was, uh, it was still being used in clinical trials. And, um, we basically went through a series of, of studies, um, primarily at Emory university and also at the VA. And we had some sort of um, uh, studies that were happening at Georgia State as well, um, doing some really interesting things with um, sort of multimodal control systems. Um, that's a really fancy word for saying using two different types of controllers to help someone recover. So instead of just like a robotic exoskeleton, we can pair it with something like using the tongue to actually augment their movements. It's kind of a really interesting concept. Um, and there's some underlying neurophysiology about why that's the case. Um, we can go into that later if we want to, um, or maybe that's another, uh, a podcast for a later date. Um, but effectively went through all these clinical trials and realized that these approaches were really good and they actually worked not only at sort of the clinic based approach, but, um, the main application that I was working on is, is these remote applications in the home. Um, because, you know, if you can fundamentally, if you can get to a clinic, you're going to get to see someone like me, uh, neurologic rehabilitation specialist, and you're going to get reasonably good care, but not everyone is that fortunate, right? In fact, if you look at some of the evidence, um, something on the order of only one third of individuals who suffered a stroke at any regular period are getting even any direct contact with a therapist. And that's just not okay in, in our books. No. And so we, we designed these approaches that were originally approaches being the modus hand and modus foot, um, were originally designed to be used in a one-on-one -on -one sort of operation. But that wasn't very scalable. And so we had to figure out ways in which we could make those technologies work in the home. And so with the VA, the Veterans Administration, um, they're very 
um, conditioned on helping veterans get care wherever they are. Um, and so we partnered with them to test and sort of trial and figure out all of these steps to get a technology that works in one-on-one to get it to work remotely wherever you are. So there's a lot of barriers that we had to overcome there, you know, geographic barriers um, in terms of you know, logistics, training, you know, different differences in technological literacy, these sorts of things that we had to sort of overcome. But after the end of about three years, we ended up publishing a couple of papers, um, read a couple of book chapters on these things, and um, uh, basically took the IP out and started Modus Nova. So I've been working with David since before Modus was Modus, really. Um, and we're really um, mo- working with um, the technology with David before Modus was Modus. And um, so I feel very fortunate to be able to be involved early on and kind of help um, take some ideas from rehab and uh, being able to ensure that we have high level of, of clinical relevance um, continue, right? Because we're, we're not just um, resting on our laurels with the technology we have now. We're actually really trying to improve day to day. And so that's kind of how I got involved early on, working with David on the clinical trials and the technology side of things. And then I went on um, immediately after that. Um, I practiced a little bit in the neuro ICU and sort of neuro oncology world, um, which is a bit of a different um, side of my research. Then I went and ended up getting a PhD in fundamental neuroscience and basic neuroscience. Um, so then I understood basically I studied how um, individual sensory motor circuits. Um, these things that help us generate movements um, actually operate under basal conditions. Like how do, how does how does our system work under healthy conditions? Right. We still, um, despite what people may understand, we actually don't know a whole lot about all these things. Right. There's still a whole lot of um, left to be known about how we generate purposeful movement and how we respond in dynamic environments in these things. And of course, um, I was real, I was interested in not only how these things work under healthy conditions, so-called basal conditions, but also what happens as a injury persists or as some sort of perturbation happens. And so studying um, um, various models of injury and being able to study them at sort of a single circuit level um, up to kind of a network level behavior. And um, and that's when I um, uh, got my PhD and uh, been working basically with MODIS since then. And I was working with MODIS as the director of clinical research and development um, throughout that, um, that time. Wow. That's a little what bit about that? me. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, yeah. One of the things that we love to see is brain injury survivors who are turning something that is very traumatic upside down and saying, mm-hmm. I'm going to make something good out of this. So, I mean, it's an amazing story of success for you. It's like, you know, something that really altered your life and, you know, for many could throw them for a loop, but, and I'm sure it was its own journey too, but, but, um, bringing it back and doing some good for this community is, um, yeah, I feel quite fortunate to be honest. Um, I don't, um, I don't take that for granted. Um, I mean, it stopped my professional racing career, but now I've had this amazing opportunity to work with, um, with, you know, survivors of neurologic injury and and try my best to, you know, do whatever I can to help them recover. So, that's something we've talked about a lot, Aaron and I, is like you could easily look at a brain injury as something very negative, but neither mm-hmm. of us uh, would ever take the experience back because, it, you know, it's enabled us to do some good with the injury in a lot of ways. Yep. So side note, I'm also a subdural hematoma survivor on the right hand side. So, OK. All right. Subarachnoid for me. There we go. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, so as the director of clinical research for Modus Novo, what is it that you do on a day-to-day basis for them? And what are you finding, um, in your research these days? Yeah. So there's a, I I wear a number of hats. I think the, the most central hat that I wear is making sure that the technology, the, the central pillow of what we do is, maintaining a high standard of clinical efficacy and safety for individuals across the country who are using the modus hand and modus foot. Um, and so that is um, making sure that, because we're not, again, we're not just uh, resting on our laurels with respect to the, the product, right? We're constantly adapting things. And so I'm, I'm working with the software engineers whenever they design a new user interface, we call, you know, they're, they're therapeutic exercises, but effectively they're just games, right? And making yeah. sure that that interface of neurologic injury survivor and the actual exoskeleton itself or the the, the UI, as we say, um, is appropriate, 
right? There's a lot of nuances in that, right? It needs to be appropriately tuned in terms of the sensory feedback. It shouldn't be overwhelming. It needs to deliver the appropriate amount of feedback. So it's a lot of, it's a lot of, uh, of translation in terms of what do we know from the literature and how we can best condition a learning paradigm for someone and try to translate that to maybe what a software engineer can actually um, design. Um, and so it's kind of an integration um, aspect of let's take what we know from, from the literature and let's try to apply it to um, our, our, current, our current setup and how can we improve things. Um, so it's not only on like the software side, but it's also on the actual interface side. One of the most important things is how the robotic exoskeleton actually integrates with you. Um, you know, one of the common problems of with stroke, not of course of all neurologic injuries, but if, but a stroke primarily, there's a lot of um, um, hypertonicity or spasticity that can occur. And trying to make sure that um, the systems are appropriately able to interface with someone, so making sure that the assistance um, that the modus hand provides or the modus hook provides is appropriately tuned for that individual. Um, what I mean by assistance is one of the most common impairments following a stroke is you have difficulty um, generating enough force in your muscles, right? Because there's just this disconnect. Um, and so what we can do is we can actually provide assistance. It's almost like an augmented muscle. It's an externalized muscle that can help provide you the ability to initiate movement or gain range of motion so you can, so you can practice in a more appropriate uh, amount of movement. And so making sure that that assistance is appropriately tuned um, such that it won't actually induce spasticity, right? Because you can imagine if I were to come in there and move you too quickly, that would actually induce some spasticity and cause a lot of pain. So we don't want to do that. So we have to make sure that whenever balance. we make, it's a delicate balance, exactly. Yeah. All right. Especially since we're actually interfacing directly with that person's body. We have to be very, very careful about how we do things. Um, and then there's, of course, a lot of the, the messaging, making sure that when we say things on the marketing side, so this is the sort of hardware direct interface with patients, but there's also on the marketing side, we have to make sure that we are telling, um, you know, people the appropriate messaging. We have to tell them exactly what the modus and the modus book can do, right? We can't, we can't venture off into those crazy worlds of marketing where we just say things and they're not supported by evidence. Um, we don't subscribe to that approach at all. And we need to make sure that whenever we say, Hey, this could probably help you, you know, here's all the sort of qualifications that go into that. You know, these are some of the good characteristics that would help predict whether or not you'd be a good responder to that. And so it's kind of shaping a bunch of different aspects and making sure we, um, we stay in the realm of um, what I like to call where we have evidential support, which is basically what does the literature say that we can and cannot say? Um, so that that's, those are some of the high level things that I do as well. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's good to hear. I mean, we feel a little bit of this on the podcast, but like our audience is a very medically vulnerable audience and we yep. want to make sure we're good stewards yep. <laughs> in what we're doing. Um, and so we never want to be like promoting something or saying something that is somehow going to cause harm down the road. We want to do our best to be, you know, translating messaging and um, interviewing folks so that people are getting good out of it and it's not a hoax in any way. So it's nice to hear that actual corporations are doing that too. With yeah. Community. And it's a hard thing to do, right? Because, yeah. you know, it's, um, you have to, I think that the challenge comes from the translating, like the primary literature, right? If you go read some of my scientific papers out there, that may not be accessible to everyone. Mm -hmm. And so there's, there's a, there's a gap, a, a chiasm, if you will, between what the primary sources mean, the, the actual published literature say, and what's maybe digestible by, um, um, everyday individuals who have neurologic injuries or their care partners who maybe don't have that training. And so I think a lot of what happens is, and I, I don't necessarily think that, that, that people or companies that don't do this well, are not trying to do this maliciously, but I think it's challenging to actually take those, those primary sources, the evidence and actually change it into some terminology that can be accessible and, um, and supported. So I think, um, I, I'm really glad that you guys do that. And it's, uh, it's a challenging thing for us to do. And we, uh, we do our best. You know, you guys are in a really interesting position, it occurred to me, because I don't know how many people or companies have um, as much real-time information about stroke survivors or anybody mm -hmm. brain injury survivors um, in general as you do because of the device and the fact that people are using it regularly. How do you take that data to evolve the device, or do you? I mean, that's 
good question. <laughs> yeah, no. So this is actually, I realized that I didn't actually answer your question that you said earlier about what is the current um, stuff going on? What is the, what's the current research? Um, so yeah, let me, let me first address your, your, um, the most present question. And that is how do we take what we're learning every day and feeding that back into improving things? And so you're exactly right. We, we are collecting a lot of information about a lot of stroke survivors across the country um, and about how they are progressing as they do more and more rehab. And so let me first lay a little bit of groundwork here for your listeners. And that is, um, to the best of our knowledge and literature, we know that movement-based rehab for stroke survivors and actually many other neurologic injury survivors, um, spinal cord injury, individuals with spinal cord injury, individuals with TBI, Movement-based rehab, motoric sensory motor rehab, is basically the gold standard that we have for improving function. If you have a if you have a sensory motor deficit, like a high difficulty moving my hand or my my foot or walking, these sorts of things. And so, the challenge with that inference is we don't exactly know what are all the knobs, the bells and whistles, if you will, that we need to actually turn in the right amount of way to help any individual person. We know on average that if we do more rehab, we get better outcomes just because that's what the aggregate of the data says, right? You can do all these statistical models and you can figure out, yeah, if we do more rehab, we get better. But that doesn't speak to any individual patient, any individual survivor of neurologic injury. And that's simply because, and I imagine um, David brought this up, it's just, it's not a tractable problem in the current healthcare system. Um, because an hour of doing an intervention is not like giving a, a, in a pharma, pharmaceutical trial. Yeah, those are expensive, but it's really cheap to manufacture one additional pill. It's a lot more challenging to actually do an, another hour of rehab, right? That's probably $100, $120 an hour because that's what the therapist time and the clinic time and all that's that and the other. And so we just don't know all of those parameters, those characteristics of an individual and their rehab as they interact what's the best combination of things to, um, to do. And so what we have now is now that we have these systems in the home, collecting data at a high frequency, something like between 20 and 50 times a second, multiple sort of streams of data about your movements, your forces, these sorts of things, your success, we can actually start to piece out and uncouple what are the most important parameters. And we can do this not only in a retrospective way, where most clinical trials, you, you get a bunch of data and you do some statistics on it and you see, yeah, this, this works um, in this way. We think it does as associated. Um, or in some of the, most, most, uh, the, the biggest trials that maybe that you can actually get to some causality. But with us, what we can do is we can look at the individual characteristics of each person. We can watch their progress over time. And then we can make sort of subtle changes as they progress. All these things can change independently. So let's say you and I are both doing rehab with the, with the modus hand right now, and you're making progress, but I'm not. Um, and maybe we're doing the exact same rehab. But then what can happen is the algorithm that's watching the data come in and watching your progress go in, seeing basically how good is Nick today as he was compared to yesterday. And let's say that wasn't that good. And the day before, he hasn't made any progress. Okay, well, we need to maybe make some modifications to the parameters, and then we can draw inferences from that parameters. Like, say, hey, maybe he needs to do more rehab. Maybe he's not such a good responder. Maybe you guys are a real good responder, and you don't need maybe an hour, two hours of rehab a day. Maybe Nick needs a lot more. Or alternatively, maybe Nick needs to have much less rehab. He's actually overtraining. This idea of overtraining versus undertraining. So it can go both ways. And so what we can do is we can actually take all this data and start to do individualized modifications to rehab programs. And we can do this with much higher fidelity than what a clinician can do, an occupational physical therapist can do, uh, because they just don't have that many touch points, right? That's really the, the challenge with, with um, trying to do this with rehab, like standard clinical model, is there's not enough touch points. Uh, there's not enough evaluations. There's not enough kind of tests and measures that can be done to assess those changes over time. But what we do now is, and I've talked about this many times, I've given some, um, some nice lectures. I recently won at um, American Society of, of Neurologic Rehabilitation. We talked about actually coupling together the therapy and the assessment. 
right? For a long time, those things have been uncoupled where, yeah, I do some rehab to you. Uh, we do some rehab together. And then I do it. Then I do an assessment. I do some goniometric measures. I ask you to, to pick up some objects and time you. But now we've actually coupled those together. And so every time you're doing rehab, you're also being assessed. And so we get a lot more, um, we get a lot more information about user progress over that way. And so we actually use this to not only improve individuals care, but now we can use these, this bit of information to actually predict how someone who is maybe a new subscriber, a new user, how, if they have the same sort of characteristics, like the same age, same times and strokes, same type of stroke, same movement abilities. Now we can design based on, let's say these 10 other people, hundred other people who had very similar responses. Let's optimize that individual's um, program going forward. And of course it would opt, it would be, you know, um, it would be modified um, after the fact, as they start to respond to it, but it gives us a much more rational starting place for that individual's care instead of just kind of guessing um, based on what an, a normative population would do. And I do so feel that's that's kind of how we use it. Yeah, sorry. it's awesome that you are too, because you know, working in healthcare for as long as I have. Um, you know, I'm in the hospital system and mm -hmm. we're really good with that gold standard care. You know, if you need that test, you're yep. getting that test. You need that pill, you're getting that pill. But when people aren't responding or they need that more individualized approach, we definitely have that as a buzzword. But I, I just I feel like that's lagging. We don't really have those yeah. abilities to do individualized yep. care, truly individualized care. We may yeah, approach and, you individually, you say, but we give you the same thing <laughs> as everyone else. And mm -hmm, you say mm -hmm. that, but then like you see the world of technology right now and the mm -hmm. way thing, the, especially in the fitness world, like I've been paying attention to like, what is it? Whoop, I think is the, yep. one of the tra fitness trackers, like the really advanced ones where it's telling, you know, it's like able to monitor, you know, your heart rate, but also like, um, different I don't even remember. Was, this was yeah, it looks at this ago. thing called heart rate variability. It looks at yes, the, the small yes. differences in time between yes. your heart rate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a friend of mine has one and she was showing me on her app, like what it showed her the day she got her second um, vaccine and like mm. the plummet in, in the numbers. And it was able to tell her like, you need to take a rest. You're not having a good day. And she was like, well, yes, I know this, but, mm. <laughs> but it's you see that happening in the fitness world and how advanced at least it feels, um, especially in terms of like individualizing a training plan for yourself if you are seriously training for some kind of athletic event. Um, and then you look at the medical world and you're like, well, how come these two have to be separate? So it's kind of nice to see them converging. Um, yeah, so. I think I think there's a couple of things here. You're exactly right, Aaron. When it comes to the um, I think the uh, what do you want to call it? Um, the intent is there, right? Mm -hmm. You want to go mm -hmm. in there and we, we use these buzzwords as you mentioned, like, oh, personalized care, right? But mm -hmm. it's always like five, 10 years away from where we are right now. Uh, we try our best, but I think one of the challenges you brought up this idea of, of performance, athletic performance, I think the stakes are perceived as being a little bit less high in healthcare, or I guess a little less high in, in athletic performance as, as compared to maybe healthcare. Mm -hmm. So I think there's probably a little bit less um, incentive yeah. to experiment, to be a little bit more on the edge with respect to, you know, what we feel comfortable with, We're, you know, healthcare is much more conservative. Mm -hmm. Um, I think in one of these situations, you know, no rehab, there's a fair bit more wiggle room. I, I, I'd argue personally. Um, I think of course, if there's no medical stability, we want to be, we want to be more cautious, but I think maybe we need to treat the process of neurologic rehabilitation as more of much more like an athletic endeavor, in which case we're trying to optimize that for you um, and trying to maximize some some function. And that may be your, you know, your, your walking, your ability to use your upper extremity. Uh, and I, I would argue that we should probably treat it a bit more like that, be a bit more um, not risky per se, but have a, have a bit more risk tolerance, I guess. Yeah. And I think we would be able to get a bit more out of it. And it makes sense. I mean, it is athletic training. If you mm -hmm. like boil it down, recovery is, um, yep. I don't think you need to be an elite athlete to find, you know, like a use for that technology. It's just, I, I look forward to seeing where it goes in the next few years. Cause it feels like it's advancing so quickly. But, and yeah. it's, it's a shift yeah, it, in thinking rather than like, I feel like in healthcare, we're looking at someone's disability and trying to do the best we can with that. 
Um, let's look at their abilities, though, which sounds like Modus Nova is kind of doing and then monopolizing on what do you have? How can we improve that to then get to the other things? Yeah, so it's just a, a really shift in care. Point, it is. Yeah. And I always like whenever I'm not always, of course, I never want to say always or never, but I frequently will um, use that same sort of approach, in which case someone comes to me, um, whether they're a, a modus hand user or modus foot user, or even just if I'm working with someone one on one um, is a general like tele react program. Um, they're like, well, these people can do X, Y, Z. Uh, and I can't do that. Or they're doing more hours of rehab and, and than I'm doing. And I'm like, okay, that's, that's okay. Yeah, that's true. Um, numerically, they're different than you. But I always prefer the internal loci of comparison, meaning let's take where you are right now and let's let, let that be the baseline for where we want to compare ourselves to tomorrow, a week from now, a month from now, a year from now. Like that's what really needs to, to be, be, be changing too because or be, I guess, the anchor point because it is so protracted, the Norea process. And, um, and we just need to take that. Um, I, I, I guess take that, take that approach. Yeah. So Nick, um, and you mentioned too, Oh, go ahead. Sorry, Aaron. Um, well, I was going to ask a question that's going to lead our direction, our conversation in a different direction. So sure. finish your thought if you'd like. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. no, I think the thought was, um, you guys were mentioning earlier, I guess the question was, um, what are some of the other sort of, um, active areas of research? What kind of what we're doing now? Um, I'm also, in terms of the, the technology, making sure that it's appropriate and safe and efficacy or effective. Um, and then on the marketing side, making sure that things are, are messaged appropriately, these sorts of things. Um, I'm also on the development side of sort of next generation products, next generation sensors, uh, you know, actually working with our academic partners. We still have active collaborations across the country with, you know, academicians trying to make sure that, hey, we have these really cool ideas. Let's Let's you know work with an actual expert in the field, whether it's um, biofeedback, whether it's novel sensors, these sorts of things. And so we have uh, we've you know worked with a couple of of, of teams across the country, um, mostly in the in the southeast, is because where we are. Um, but to develop some sort of next generation um, systems, um, most notably you know different sensors. So um, one of the areas of real interest for me is the subpopulation of stroke survivors who are, let's say, have very little to no active movement. They are a group of individuals who are, um, let's say, have least access to rehab from an already um, subpopulation of people who are very, very, don't have a lot of access. Um, so something like 10 to 20% of stroke survivors who can't really engage in even traditional types of rehab. Um, and so working with um, some um academicians here in the Atlanta area to and some scientists to develop some sensors that would help give them access to the modus hand with a novel um, sensor so instead of relying on a kinetic based sensor, which is appropriate for the vast majority of stroke survivors. But for that subset of people who are not appropriate for that, we want to have a way in which they can still engage in this. And so we've developed um, two sort of approaches to help them um, gain access. So that's another sort of side of what I do as well on the on the sort of frontiers of, of technology and neuro rehab. And actually, what you just said there helps lead into what I was going to ask you um, when we're thinking Excellent. about. Yeah, perfect. You read my mind um, when we're thinking about hand and foot. For me, I'm thinking of mm -hmm. those as more of those fine motor, intricate, maybe smaller muscle groups. Um, how, how does this translate into this larger population of people that have hemiparesis, which for people that don't know the terms, you know, you can't move your whole arm. So why are we starting with your fingers or you can't even walk cause your legs not moving? Why are we focusing on the foot? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that it's, um, it's good to mention that, uh, there are different ways. There's a lot of different robotic systems out there that um, are maybe like whole body exoskeletons, these sorts of things that would be maybe more appropriate if you have something like, or you'd think at first pass, it'd be more appropriate for someone with a full upper extremity hemiparesis. Um, and, and that may be the case, but if you look at the literature, the literature actually kind of parses things out into um, sort of whether you're working on proximal versus distal muscles. And when you actually focus, when you do the comparison, the straight up comparison, um, you actually see that if you focus on the proximal muscles, uh, maybe in these sort of whole body gross motor arm functions, 
you're exactly right, Aaron. You do get some improvement there, but you don't get any carryover to the distal extremity, like your hand and your fine motor skills. But what's really interesting is if you actually focus on the fine motor skills, you actually get carryover to the more gross motor skills, which is really surprising. Um, so there is this sort of non-equal relationship, this non-equal sort of carryover effect that's present. And I, uh, to be honest, the, under, the fundamental underlying mechanisms are not entirely known. There's a couple of um, things that I can kind of um, um, back up to in terms of support. The way that our circuits are wired with respect to the, the cortex, um, they're actually designed in functional networks. And so when you actually kind of peer down to the cell level, um, they're, they're sort of um, cohabitating with neck, uh, neurons that actually help you do a whole, uh, whole body, whole arm movement. And so if we focus on individual segments that drive a function, which is basically we, we, we function with our, our sort of end effectors, if you will, our feet and our hands and our arms, um, you actually get activation in these more um, proximal segments. And so especially if we have to um, take a therapeutic exercise, a therapeutic approach, and then also apply that to some economic, economical constraint as well as like a technological constraint, um, focusing on the, the distal upper extremity, like the fine motor skills of the wrist and the hand, or more appropriately clinically, as well as um, uh, more economically feasible, just in terms of cost, as well as it's a lot easier to for an end user to operate um, independently. That's a really, really important thing. So the other thing to mention, too, is that generally speaking, the recovery process comes sort of proximal to distal. And so most people with residual upper extremity impairments following stroke have the residual impairments in their distal extremities, their fingers, their hands, their wrists, this sort of thing. And so if we wanted to focus on sort of helping the most people, um, sort of doing the most good, if you will, if you kind of have an economic mind, um, we want to focus on those distal extremities. The really easy thing to think about in terms of we can we can sort of forego the, the neurophysiology of how circuits are constructed. But if you focus on just some practical things, right, if I give you the ability to use your hand back, um, with, with doing something like a dedicated intervention to the hand and the wrist, what are you more likely to do? You're actually more likely to incorporate that into your daily life, in which case then you start to do some subset of tasks um, in your daily life that actually requires your hand. And by nature of doing that, you'll also start to operate your elbow and your shoulder, right? So you get this kind of snowball effect of where, hey, now you have some function in your hand. Now I'm going to actually go and start to like reach for that pen. I'm going to start to do some bimanual tasks, some cooking together. You know, I might start to like hold the, the loaf of bread and start to cut it, these sorts of things. And then what happens is your normal activities that you're doing are your rehab. And so you get this kind of positive feedback loop that just allows your normal activities to then become um, your, your rehab. And so that's a much more of a, um, an easy, more easily accessible idea of why we want to focus on a distal extremity. Yeah. Same thing for the foot as well. It's interesting too. I mean, like I'm not a therapist or a psychologist in any way, but I would imagine that some of that psychological good done by those simple tasks, like being able to cut bread or like that, um, that little taste of freedom or like positivity, Mm -hmm. I would imagine also does quite a bit of good for the brain. (laughs) Yeah. And I think, yeah, just giving someone the ability to actually have some of that control, like maybe independent of you being able to move your shoulder any better. And I can talk about the evidence for that as well. We actually do, we do see those improvements directly, but if you have the ability to um, manipulate your hand, even in a gross way, right. Um, then you're going to be able to, as you say, to be more motivated to do more rehab. Right. Mm -hmm. And because the process is so protracted, you need to have a lot of, um, a lot of motivation and those little things can really help you um, stay the course. Yeah. I was going to say that like little taste of freedom must be such a good incentive to do more. More. Exactly. Exactly. So I definitely. Um, yeah, I think the the. Uh, go, go ahead, Aaron. No, I was going to say I definitely can see how the benefits of getting those fine motors in your hands um, translates mm-hmm. into so much independence. Um, how does it translate into the fine motor of your foot? Like, where do we see those benefits? Sure. So this is this is a good question. So whenever we do these clinical trials, we actually focus. So the the motor's foot. Um, you can guys can, if you haven't looked at it or or seen it really, you can think of it almost like a gas pedal of a car on a car where you can push, push your toes down and bring your toes up, 
but you can also operate in kind of multi-dimensions, meaning you can kind of move your toes in and move your toes out. You can imagine kind of like maybe walking up an unequal surface of like your, your yard or these sorts of things. Um, when it comes to how the, the modus foot actually will help you with fine motor control there. Um, it's a good question. We actually haven't evaluated the fine motor skills of the foot. It's not something that we typically do clinically or even really scientifically, to be honest. We're really more focused on the, honestly, the, the gross motor function and the balance and support that you gain from getting back those, that muscular control. So things like um, walking. So we've evaluated in these clinical trials an individual's ability to walk their distance that they walk and the speed they walk, um, as well as their balance. Um, that's, that's important as well. And so what we find is that we're actually able to help people walk basically twice as fast and twice as far as, as before. Um, and you may be saying, well, I don't care how fast I walk. Um, that's not that important. Um, if I can just get to point A or from point A to point B, I'll be happy. Um, and so we can help you do that with, with more, um, with more distance, but the speed's actually quite important. And it's one of these um, sort of assays, these bioassays that we use that correlates really well with overall function in, in a community. And let me give you a, a really, really clear example of why that's the case. Imagine you're walking in your town right now and you approach a stoplight and you are waiting at the stoplight and then the light changes and then you get a set amount of time to walk across that street, right? Now you have to make it across that, that, um, that street in that amount of time. If you can't do it, you're going to be in a really potentially dangerous or precarious situation. And so uh, the speed in which you can walk is actually quite predictive of how safe you are going to be, not only from walking around in your own home, but also in the community as well. And so, um, you know, we can maybe get into the details about why, you know, whether or not those times need to be changed and, and, and have more adaptability to individuals with neurologic injuries. But again, that's probably a, a conversation <laughs> for, for a different podcast. No, um, I mean, yeah, as so, somebody who got hit by a car in a pedestrian crosswalk, <laughs> you really right? hit that point home for me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, counts, it counts down, right? It literally counts down and it tells you exactly how yeah. long you have. And if you can't make it across there, you can't operate in the community. And I think uh, it, it, of course, it correlates with a lot of other, you know, good control and being able to respond. Because if you can actually walk faster, you can contract your muscles quicker. If you can contract your muscles quicker, then you're able to actually, A, put more power down, which means you can actually walk farther and faster. But it means that you can also respond to dynamic stimuli. So what happens if you get bumped and you're walking? You need to be able to adapt to that and be able to stop yourself from falling over. Mm. You know, falling over, breaking hips and these sorts of things, um, not good, right? We want to avoid those things at all, at all costs. And so being able to have that ability to dynamically respond in the appropriate time course, really, really important. And the speed in which you can walk is, is, is highly correlated with those functions. And so that's why we, that's why we really focus on that. Okay. So I'd say to kind of round it out, we really don't focus on the, the fine motor skills per se of the foot and the ankle, but, but we do focus on those things that are most salient to us, being able to walk um, successfully and, and safely. Um, and you may be asking, well, what happened? Why, why are we focused on the foot and ankle, right? That seems a little silly. Like it's my whole leg is required to do this. Well, what about my knee? What about my quads? What about my hip and my, my glutes? Those are of course important. They really are. Don't get me wrong. Um, but when you look at actually what is the main determinant of your forward propulsion when you walk, that actually comes from your ankle. It all comes from your ankle. It's all the push off, right? Your glute helps you, your glutes and your, and your, your knees effectively. Well, your glutes help you stay upright keep your um, standing in an erect posture and your quads help you kind of absorb some shock when you walk, but your forward propulsion is almost entirely attributable to your, your gastrocnemius and soleus muscles, which are the muscles that we're working with from this foot, help you generate that power to help you go forward. Um, and also too, we all, we also help with the TA, the tibialis anterior muscle. These are the muscles that help you prevent foot drop. And so when we can work on these two things simultaneously, help you improve your ability to push off and walk faster, as well as help you actually, increase your what's called dorsiflexion. This is kind of imagine if you're staying upright, bring your toes to the sky, working on that dorsiflexion, super, super important for you to be safe. Cause if you can't keep your foot up, you're going to catch your foot and you're going to trip and fall. So we, we, we do focus on those, on those sort of high level things. It's a little bit different upper extremity, lower extremity, but the fundamental principles are the same, right? We, it's a repetitive task practice type of thing and, and increasing muscle strength and, and endurance. So it sounds like you have a good ability to help those that have foot drop um, a lot of people yep. might be, you know, might be more familiar with those types of terms. 
Um, yeah. Sounds like like contractures in your hand and your arms. You're helping with those. Um, what other things to kind yeah. of drive home to people that are listening? You know, who should be reaching out to you in the stroke world? Sure. I think really um, it, when we kind of I mentioned this stuff earlier, um, there's a there's a vast majority of individuals who can benefit. Right? There's seven million stroke survivors in the country right now, in the United States, not to, not to mention the, the, the tens of other millions of, of individuals across the, across the world. But something like 80% of these individuals have residual upper extremity impairments and lower extremity impairments. And of course, not all of them are gonna be appropriate. Not all of them will like you know using games and technologies and these sorts of things. But generally speaking, if you have a residual upper extremity impairment, you can benefit from more rehab. We just know that even if you're 10 years post-stroke, you can still benefit. Um, in terms of the functional um, functional impairments. The other really interesting thing that we found throughout these studies is that we're also able to help individuals with depressive symptoms. Um, and so we actually evaluated the sort of cognitive elements that um, um, often determine um, uh, quality of life. And so through these, these studies, we also evaluated um, depressive symptoms. And we found that being able to engage um, in, you know, uh, in rehab um, maybe for the first time in years, also was really helpful for people's quality of life and their self-efficacy and, and these sorts of things. So, of course, we want to help individuals with um, with their function, right, with their sensory and motor function, but also being able to gain some autonomy back of your progress, of your rehab, really, really important. Um, and so I think anyone who's interested in any of those aspects, um, it would be great to talk to you, right? And we can kind of work together, work collaboratively. This is what we always like to do on the, and, and at Modus. We like to work collaboratively with you and your care partners to see if this is a good fit for you. Um, and we're, we're also happy for if this doesn't work for you, that's fine. Um, but we want to have you um, kind of give it, a, give it a fair shake to see if you could benefit from it. Yeah. I love it. I think it's awesome. I'm curious to know, I mean, knowing that technological progress is moving at, you know, a pretty steady pace. Do mm -hmm. you have like a wish list for, you know, where mm -hmm. Modus Nova is in, you know, like a year, two years, five years? Sure. Sure. I think the thing for us is, uh, I've said this many, many times, and that is that we have spent the better part of, I don't know, 10, 20 years. Well, the technology has been around since probably 2001. I don't know if David talked to you about that. Yeah, he but, did a little bit. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, it was it was born out of constraint therapy. Right. And it's taken a long time for us to build up the scientific efficacy. Right. We had we can't just make something and then claim it works. Right. The scientific process is slow. Um, and we had to go through those those rigorous steps to ensure that what we're doing is appropriate and, and safe and effective. And right now, what we, I really like to be able to do in a year is is have people be aware of this as an option. Um, maybe not everyone's gonna, gonna enjoy doing it. That's fine. But those people who could benefit from it, I want them to be aware that this is an option for them. Uh, they, they don't have to, you know, accept where they are right now and, um, and, and, and they can, they can still progress. That's sort of a, um, it's a high level wish. I'd say in terms of the technology and the, um, the approaches, uh, I think every day that we operate, we get better and better information about how to adapt things, right? So there's, there's, there's the technology, the actual hardware, and then there's the application of that hardware as it interfaces within an individual person. And so being able to get more and more information, the more individuals that actually use this, the more we learn. And that means the more that the individual predictive algorithms are actually operating in a better way. And so what I'm hopeful is that we'll, we'll continue to have more and more individuals um, actually engage with the technology and we will continue to learn fundamental principles about what um, what the optimal sort of neuro rehab needs to look like. And this will not only inform individuals who are using the modus hand, modus foot, but just general rehab in general, right? Um, I think being able to access and, and utilize this information that we learn in these approaches will be able to help the broader community of neuro rehab. Um, and then in terms of the actual technology side, we're, of course, developing um, sort of next generation systems. Um, you can imagine ones for different segments, right? We very much subscribe to this idea of a, a modular based system, meaning um, we actually started with the whole exoskeleton, right? Um, shoulder, scapular, elbow, um, wrist and hand. But those are really difficult for people to use. And so what we actually landed on, as we talked about earlier, is a system where you are using just sort of a, a modular approach at a given um, segment. 
And so we're actually developing now the next generation of, of modular approaches going up the upper extremity and down, I guess, up the lower extremity as well. So you can imagine ones for the knee and the hip and the elbow and these sorts of things. Um, so I think that's, that's of course, um, uh, on the technology side. I think also on the clinician side, we were very, very interested in helping um, sort of expand access to tele-rehab options for OTs and PTs. Um, you know, OTs and PTs has, um, practice has historically been very, very brute force, very, very one-on-one, and that's great. Um, but I think when you just do the simple math, um, and I'll just do the simple math for you really quickly, there's 350,000 OTs and PTs in the United States right now. If all of them worked 100% of the time and eight hours a day, 40 hours a week um, at 100% efficiency, they would only be able to address 10% of the actual need of all the stroke survivors. Wow. And that's that's all of them. So that's 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 it's even worse than that because not all the OTs and PTs are helping stroke survivors. There's also all the orthopedic conditions, all the post-surgical stuff, right? All that other things. So we, we need to have approaches that can help take the skilled brain of an occupational therapist or a physical therapist and expand that, right? We need to have these things called workforce multipliers. And we think that these robotic systems can take what a PTRT knows and expand that and amplify that across the many hours and many days that these people, you know, these stroke survivors actually need um, to get care. And so working with physical occupational therapists to help them, A, learn how to use technology, because it's not in the didactic course right now, it's not in the formalized training, um, and also being able to help them do this remotely. So independent of geographic restrictions. And so those things are really kind of um, um, probably my, my high level um, goals in the next year. We're starting to do all of those things. It's just, I'd like to really see them to come to fruition in, about, in a year or so. Well, thank God that you are, because as the baby boomers need more care, we're quickly running <laughs> yeah. out of providers. Yeah. And this is we need to address exactly. that. We aren't going to have enough people yep. to yep. care for everyone. Yeah. And this is not only a PTOT problem. It's just the one that's most salient to me. But I imagine this is also true for nursing physicians, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yep. It's a health problem. Well, I mean, there's that, but also like I was laughing. So I work in marketing, Nick. So, um, but we were kind of joking in my office a couple of days ago about um, the aging millennial and how like Mm -hmm. a lot of us in who work at my agency are millennials, but we don't really want to acknowledge that we're now the aging millennial, but it's a thing. Mm -hmm. And, um, Mm -hmm. we were chuckling actually when we interviewed David about like being a child of the nineties and loving certain kind of video games. And this is like the perfect, uh, solution for the aging millennial who's (laughs) dealing with stroke recovery. Honestly, it's like a double whammy. I think that's the thing, right? Because, you know, we also have to adapt to the next generation of people who are going to be using this, Mm -hmm. right? And there's going to be an expectation and actually is already an expectation, right? There are young stroke survivors and not all above 65, right? Mm -hmm. We we work with people as young as five years old um, who've had strokes, right? And so there is a change in the expectation of the convenience and the accessibility of their healthcare, Mm -hmm. right? And we think that that is, um, we're we're just, we're rising to meet that, that, that need and that request. Um, And uh, simultaneously also offering, you know, this as uh, something that could be interesting to individuals who are not so technologically um, maybe savvy or used to um, these these approaches. I mean, yeah, like every, every single person on this earth is aging right now. And the reality is the aging millennial Mm -hmm. is the, the generation that, you know, like was an early adopter of the iPhone and they have a very different, we, I should say, have a very different way of approaching technology and our expectations of technology. So it's, I feel like you guys are sort of like primed for that um, as we keep aging. So, yeah. Yep. Yep. I have another question. I love all this. Yeah, I do too. Sure. I have another question that might go into the weeds and I know um, time is running down, but you had mentioned the tongue with some of your treatments. So are you, and I just wonder, is this the idea of activating other areas of the brain to stimulate areas that are around it to start working again? Um, Can you speak to that just a little bit? Sure. Nurse so there was, Aaron um, swoops in. <laughs> oh, what's that? Nurse Aaron swoops in. I know. I'm oh, yeah, just yeah, interested. Yeah. <laughs> sure. So, um, you, you know, unfortunately, we're on a podcast right now, um, so you you couldn't actually see me, but I I'm a I'm a violent gesticulator, right? So I will, as I'm talking, I will I will use my uh, uh, I will exclaim with my hands. 
um, we all do this, right? We're, we're humans, right? We actually, um, independent of language, independent of, 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 of ethnicity, heritage, whatever, we, we all do this basically. And the reason being is it's a form of communication, right? We actually rely on this to help message. And uh, insofar as it's, ba- it's baked into our neurophysiology. So if you were to do neurophysiologic studies of the, of the cortex and the, mo- mo- the motoric area, the motor cortex, you actually can see that there are very powerful connections between the upper extremity networks and the tongue networks um, that actually control um, sort of motoric language. And it turns out that these things also co-activate because we gesticulate while we're talking. Um, And the underlying idea here was that if there's a subpopulation of people who actually, who are stroke survivors, who don't have any volitional movement, right? These are individuals with a lot of placidity. And that's a fancy way of saying they don't have the ability to generate enough neurologic activity to move their arms efficiently um, against gravity or contract a muscle. And the underlying idea of this original study was, could we leverage the tongue to help synchronously activate the motoric area of the upper extremity with the hope of regaining some of those, um, those networks? And so it's a, it, was a, it was a very, very challenging series of studies. And you can go look at the, the, the papers in the literature. Um, very, very challenging. What we had to do is we had to basically take you know, like a, a, a joystick um, that you use to play video games. Instead of it being controlled by your thumbs, what we did is we had the, the modus hand, which was the actual robotic device that actually would move that individual uh, without the ability to move, uh, uh, I might mention. What we did is instead of having a, an external controller, like with their less effective limb, what we did is we actually took a magnetic sensor, put it on their tongue, and we mapped the intraoral space, so your oral cavity, in three dimensions, and we could actually generate commands from where their tongue was moving in space. And we could then use those commands, like you could imagine my left lower part of my oral cavity. So if I move my tongue to my left lower quadrant, that would be a down command for my hand. If I moved it to the upper left, that could be an up command for my hand. If I moved it to like the center of my mouth, it would be a null command, meaning no, no movement at all. Um, so we, we did this and we actually used the tongue as an augmented control of the motor's hand. And, uh, we were able to do this and people were able to learn activities, but it was just very, very slow in terms of the actual, the process of doing the experiments very, very hard. Um, and so we, we since moved on to using, um, um, different approaches by manual control. So using the less effective limb to help kind of drive and augment that. Um, ends up being a bit more, um, a bit easier to do. So we use these sort of like arm based approaches, um, by manual robotic systems. But, um, but yeah, yeah, that, that's really the underlying process, um, yeah, of what the study was. So, yeah. So it didn't really end up with the applicable, um, things that we can do right now for brain injury survivors, but it was an interesting idea to look at. So is that what I'm hearing. Yeah. And, yeah. and this is, this is often what happens with science, I think, is that it's really hard. Um, science is really hard. Um, it is. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, it, you know, you have these, you have these great ideas. They're baked in, they're baked in, um, real, um, and, and real sort of underlying physiology in the, in, the, in the nervous system, but it's, can you apply it and you, can you apply it at scale? Mm-hmm. That's the real problem. Right. And if it takes me an hour to put on a magnet on your tongue, because your tongue doesn't want to have things attached to it. Um, can we, you know, could, and it takes another hour to do the, the mapping process, right? We have to basically use this computational approach to map the intraoral space, et cetera, et cetera. Pretty, pretty challenging stuff. Uh, it just, it wouldn't work at scale. Um, it's a good concept, um, but it didn't, uh, it just didn't flesh out really, mm-hmm. um, unfortunately. But we did, we, yeah. I mean, we had a, we had a pilot study with um, 10 or so individuals and uh, many of them were able to learn the steps and actually improve their motoric function. But um, just wasn't, didn't have enough legs, if you will, to kind of take it to the next level, unfortunately. Yeah. It's an interesting idea that we've been hearing answer... about. Oh, sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting sometimes idea we've been hearing about like... from other brain injury um, guests that we've had on where they're talking about um, stimulating areas of, you know, what other areas of the brain can we stimulate to help regain function? So it's interesting. Sure. This is a broader um, conversation and something everyone's kind of looking at, I think, right now. 
Yeah, very much so. I think yeah. we're actually partnering with a couple of, of, of PIs across, you know, in Georgia Tech, where, um, where I am as well, um, where we're also looking at these, um, the, the sort of broad concept is, is called multimodal approaches, where you're taking multiple independent therapeutic types and you're trying to pair them together to kind of get some additive effects. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that we're really interested in doing is, is understanding, um, could we use sort of non-invasive brain stimulation to help augment these things. And so, um, you know, working with um, potentially up at the Kessler Institute and here at Georgia Tech, we're using some um, some approaches to do some brain stimulation with these um, robotic-based systems to help individuals get more movement practice. Uh, and I think those are they're really promising they are. It's just a matter of how can we take those approaches from a scientific sort of lab-based system to real practice and then not only real practice but scaling enough to the numbers that people actually need it those are very very non-trivial things and this is why it took us with modus so long to actually do that because there are there are very very tricky steps um to get us from a technology that works right it's safe and effective to actual patient care in the real world very very challenging yeah well i think if any of us brain injury survivors have learned anything, it may be that slow progress is still good progress. So <laughs> I guess yeah, that goes very for technology so. too. Think, yeah. And you know, there's things that we can do now, right? We can do bimanual stuff, right? You can do that. You don't need any technology. And we encourage this actually with everyone who's doing um, the modus hand modus foot work, right? You should do bimanual tasks. Like when they're doing the exercises, they should also use their less affected limb to mirror it, right? That actually helps um, um, activate more cortical areas and get more drive. Uh, so there are things that you can do, you can incorporate, even if you're not using modus hand modus, but you can still do these, these sort of augmentative like approaches to help, um, uh, um, to help sort of accelerate, um, the care. Well, Nick, thank you so much for your time and also sure. for all the hard work on this. I mean, it's an incredible device, incredible technology. I feel like we'll be watching closely to see where you guys go from here because it's it's wonderful to see and it's mm -hmm. also just cool if we boil it down to that. Yeah, well, thank, yeah thanks for, <laughs> uh, yeah. Thanks for uh, having me on. Um, yeah. And I, I hope I didn't get into too many weeds. And talk, I didn't really think I was going to talk about the tongue drive stuff. But, uh, no, uh, no. Uh, it just made go. me think. I was like, Ooh, what's he doing with that? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah I so mean, cool. no, it's pretty um, fascinating. So, anyway, we highly so value anyone that lets Pong be a good use of time. So, thank you for that. <laughs> Say the aging well, actually, millennials. Yeah, I don't know um, if you guys um, did. You guys get a chance to actually look through the um, the technology? It might be kind of cool to walk you through it at some point. Um, yeah, I mean, I've watched some videos, but no, it, you we, have okay. We yeah. haven't actually like. Yeah. So yeah, just, um, just so you guys know too. It's yeah, that's fine. Um, I do a um, uh, basically it's a live stream three times the week on Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays on. Um, it's called Rehab Power Hour, um, and it's on Facebook, and we stream it on Instagram. But it's a uh, and you guys are more than welcome, and any of your listeners are more than welcome to come on and learn more about it. I also, I talk about things like I talk about neuro rehab. I get into the weeds. I have some really cool guests. I'd love to have you guys on. I think you're um, getting us actually. I, yeah. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> Very, Very soon. Good. So I don't control my schedule anymore these days. So, um, <laughs> but um, yeah, you guys can come on and experience what it's like. I, I do assessments remotely, right? You know, a couple weeks ago, I was helping someone in Bolivia with their, with their modus hand. Oh, that's so cool. so um, it's pretty cool stuff. Yeah. So. That's awesome. Well, to our listeners, please do check out Modus Nova at modusnova.com. There's a ton of information on there if you're interested in learning more about the technology itself, um, whether you're the right kind of user for it, all that good stuff. Um, they have an awesome Instagram account at Modus Nova on Instagram. And then, yes, the Facebook, um, there's a, a support group for Modus Nova users, but it does not mean that if you are not a Modus Nova user that you can't go and learn about it. So please do check it out. Um, there's a ton of information, a great community there. And again, Nick, thank you so much for all that you're doing. And um, what an awesome brand as a marketing geek. Like I just am really proud to see something like this happening in the brain injury community. So yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks so much again. This was, this was yeah. awesome. I really appreciate the time. Yeah. So this is Mariah and Aaron signing out. We'll talk to y'all next week. Hey everyone, in case you're wondering what Aaron and I do for a living, it's not podcasting. 
I work in marketing, Erin's a nurse, and this is just a side project that we love. We really do enjoy doing this, and we've enjoyed being part of the community and building up a group of listeners. You guys probably don't even realize how much you help us out uh, just by supporting us. If you were looking to do a little bit extra, uh, we would love to have your ratings on Apple or whichever podcasting service that you use. Or if you hear us talk about a product on the podcast, we do include those links to Amazon in our show notes on our website. Your purchase after you click on the link just gives us a tiny little kickback. Nothing much, but it helps us pay our bills. And if you are thinking, well, this isn't enough, we want to do a little bit more on our website at www.makingheadwaypodcast.com. We have a donation page. Any proceeds we receive, we give 10% to our favorite brain injury nonprofit of the moment. So if you are looking to do a little bit more, that would be a great way to support us. Again, we appreciate you guys oh so much. Thanks so much for your time and your ongoing support. We love our listeners and we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Thanks for joining us on the Making Headway Podcast. For more information and show notes, visit makingheadwaypodcast.com. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and leave us a review. Check us out at Making Headway Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and share with your friends. Catch you next time. All topics are intended to be used for educational and entertainment purposes only. The podcast is not to be used as a substitute for medical advice. Always consult with your healthcare provider for any issues or treatment considerations you may have. For our full legal terms, please see our website at makingheadwaypodcast.com. This podcast was recorded, mixed, and mastered with love at Stout Heart Studios. Sun rises across the ocean. 